Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. With Congress running out of time and energy, renewables are getting a last gasp chance from some senators. And solar thermal power gets a green light in California. Renewable energy is a wonderful thing. There's no risk of radiation like there is in nuclear, no CO2 emissions like in coal. Undeniably a good thing. The downfall of this kind of technology is that you need an enormous amount of land. A giant solar project focuses attention on the economics of sun power in the Golden State. Also, a conceptual artist curbs canine carbon. His work of art sheds light on a common problem. Owning a dog is sometimes not the most environmentally sound thing you can do. I guess this is one way of reducing that footprint. Or in this case, paw print, making methane from what man's best friend leaves behind. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The sun's rapidly setting on the 110th Congress. But before this session becomes a dim memory, a few senators are trying to reach across the aisle to set new goals for renewable energy. Their bill would boost the amount of electricity that comes from sources such as the sun, wind, waves, and biomass. But as Living on Earth's Mitra Taj reports, the legislation aims low and comes late. When 2008 ushered in a Democratic-led Congress, many concerned with climate change thought the time was ripe for legislation to curb greenhouse gas pollution. Two years later, with a comprehensive climate bill dead in the Senate and little time left before the next Congress brings in a new political mix, the focus has shifted from what global commitments demand to what U.S. politics allows. Introducing the Renewable Electricity Promotion Act of 2010. The beauty of this one is not tap and trade. Senator Sam Brownback, a Republican from Kansas, was turned off by a proposal to cap greenhouse gas emissions known as cap-and-trade. But now he's co-sponsoring this bipartisan bill, which would require utility companies to use renewables for at least 15 percent of their electrical production. It's a um, low enough level. There are a number of people who would like it to be higher. Uh, but this is a level that we can attain to uh, and do in a balanced fashion, balancing energy, environment and economic uh, needs. If passed, the bill would bring the 15 percent goal into effect by 2021. But for the next few years, just 3 percent of electricity would have to come from renewables, slightly less than what the country as a whole is already producing. The relatively weak short-term goal is part of why many environmental groups criticized the legislation when it came up before. But things have changed. The politics have changed. The probability of passing something in the Senate has changed. Marchant Wentworth lobbies Congress for the Union of Concerned Scientists, an environmental group now supporting this standalone bill. It's not what we would have wanted. We would have preferred to have the, the Congress take prompt action on climate change this year. That's probably not going to happen. But, you know, we believe this does set up the national framework to move renewables forward. The policy would become the first national market mechanism for renewable power. And it actually does allow utility companies that generate more than the required solar or wind energy to sell credits to others having a harder time. 
Smaller utilities are exempt from the requirement, and up to a quarter of the 15% target can be met through energy efficiency. We're looking to say to industries throughout the world, come to the United States. We want you to set your renewable industries here because there's a market. At least 29 states and the District of Columbia have already set their own renewable electricity targets, but a nationwide standard would encourage more trading of credits, more investments in renewables, and a small step toward a national carbon-constrained economy. Last year, for the first time, China surpassed the United States in investments in clean energy, a finding not lost on Senator Byron Dorgan, a Democrat from windswept North Dakota. The wind energy industry is falling off a cliff. The second quarter of this year showed a 71 percent decrease in wind energy production. Dorgan is also a co-sponsor for this renewable electricity bill known as RES. In my state, we have 770 wind towers at this point. Could have a lot more. There are more projects ready on the shelf, designed, ready to be built. But the fact is, the RES is the catalyst that will drive this. But other states, particularly in coal country, might not have as much to look forward to in the bill as North Dakota. Energy policy expert Nick Loris of the conservative think tank the Heritage Foundation. It may make sense in certain states, but not others, and that's why a federal mandate isn't the way to go if wind and solar and other renewable energy sources could compete economically, then they wouldn't need a mandate. So this isn't really about reducing carbon dioxide, but picking winners and losers among energy sources. Supporters say federal policies for decades have favored the coal industry, and this would only begin to reverse that course. But the bill clearly does pick winners among renewables. Solar, wind, geothermal and ocean energy, biomass, landfill gas, and hydrokinetic energy can all be tapped. Excluded are offshore wind, hydroelectric energy from new dams, ethanol, and nuclear energy. The bill isn't guaranteed an easy passage. One challenge, says Senator Brownback, is to keep the delicate compromise already achieved intact. People can't get cute with this. Uh, this needs to be the 15 percent and set. Personally, I'd like for ethanol to be in and a part of it. So if, it gets, if things get added on that are extraneous, you'll see people shuck off of it. But already demands have been bubbling up. Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee says he won't vote for it unless nuclear energy can count. Democrat Mary Landrieu of Louisiana says she won't support it unless the offshore drilling moratorium is repealed. And perhaps most importantly, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has used a three-letter word to describe the policy, calling it a de facto tax on utility rates. And for those who watched cap-and-trade be vilified as cap-and-tax, those are fighting words. Merchant Wentworth with the Union of Concerned Scientists. We're saying bring that fight on. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid is expected to take up the bill in the lame duck legislative session. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington. There's a simple device that can combat climate change, dramatically improve livelihoods, and make women and children safer. The device is a clean cook stove. And according to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, it's available and affordable right now. I know that maybe this sounds hard to believe, but... By upgrading these stoves, millions of lives could be saved and improved. This could be as transformative as bed nets or even vaccines. So today I am very pleased to announce the creation of the Global Alliance for Clean Cook Stoves. The Secretary of State launched the alliance this past week. The U.N. is part of this new public-private effort. 
Leslie Cordes, Senior Director of Partnership Development at the United Nations Foundation, estimates that right now nearly 3 billion people in the developing world cook on polluting stoves and open fires. About half the world's population uses over 500 million stoves every day to cook their food. They're incredibly polluting and they're often dangerous. They're often not stoves at all. They're often open fires, six stone or three stone fires. They give off a number of harmful and toxic pollutants that really poison the air that the women who use the stoves breathe, as well as the children and other family members that surround the stoves while they're being used. Ms. Clinton was saying that there were 2 million premature deaths a year, and that that's twice as, as many as, as from malaria. That's right. That's the latest World Health Organization numbers put that figure at close to 2 million. And it's really remarkable that the issue hasn't received more attention given the large number of deaths worldwide. In addition, millions more are sickened by the smoke from the stoves, the exposure. Children get early childhood pneumonia, emphysema, lung cancer, cardiovascular disease, and a a number of other very serious health impacts. So it's even a much larger problem than those numbers tell the story. Of course, it's women who do most of the cooking in many of these places. That's right. And they also do most of the wood collection. And it's also an expensive burden for women to fuel very inefficient stoves. And women and girls travel often miles each day to collect wood, putting them at great personal risk, especially in conflict countries. Uh, These women are at grave risk for gender violence and other physical injury. So what makes a, a clean cook stove clean? There's a number of different things, but basically what you want to do is combust the fuel as quickly and completely as possible. In addition to looking at cleaner stoves, we're also looking at cleaner fuels um, and moving people up the fuel chain so that they're using fuels that are as clean as possible. And climate clean as well. That is, they don't change the climate. That's right. They reduce the emissions of CO2, methane, and a very potent climate forcer, black carbon which is fear it's uh, particularly a problem for the Arctic regions where it lands on the snow and absorbs the heat and can cause problems in terms of melting snow. So it accelerates climate change. It accelerates climate change. That's right. But this is not a new concept, clean cook stoves. So what's new here with the, with the partnership? No, you're right. It's not a it's not a new concept. People have been addressing cook stoves and grappling with how to deploy clean cook stoves at scale for many years. But we have some recent advances in in design and testing and monitoring. We have new research on the health and environmental benefits of clean cook stoves and some very exciting national programs that we think can be built on to really bring clean cook stoves to scale in the developing world. How much is a clean cook stove? They range in price anywhere from 20 to to $100. But obviously, our goal under the alliance is really to make those stoves affordable for the poorest of the poor in which use of inefficient stoves exacts a very high health toll and economic toll. So what's your goal? I mean, uh, do you have a specific goal in mind? Yes, we're really, I mean, frankly, our high-level goal is to uh, seek universal access and adoption of clean cook stoves, but we have an interim goal as well, and um, we're looking at achieving 100 million additional clean cook stoves out in the market by 2020. And we also have an underlying goal to really strengthen the market for these stoves, because as you know, giving away stoves that people don't use is really not going to provide any health or, or environmental benefits. But we're excited by the 
opportunity presented by some of these new business models. We've got um, women-owned businesses distributing stoves at the local level. We have innovative financing and micro-lending models. I was um, speaking with somebody yesterday who runs a stove manufacturing facility in Ghana who has developed a very simple lending scheme for his stove. He knows that women cannot afford the stoves up front. And it takes them about two months to pay back the stove. So what Toil is doing is putting a small, almost like a little piggy bank in each home. And people put the money they would have spent on the wood fuel into this bank each day. And then after two months, he comes by and collects the bank. And that's the payment for the cleaner stove. But what about the cultural component? I mean, different places use different size pots and pans. You're absolutely right. Um, Somebody who's getting up in the morning to boil coffee and cook tortillas for their family is going to have a very different technology need than somebody in Cambodia who's cooking rice. And so one of the things we're really trying to do under this alliance is look for those stoves that are culturally appropriate, where the materials can be readily available, that are accessible to women in each of these different sectors. And um, we aren't looking for a one-size-fits-all stove. We really want to address these cultural needs that you raise. Leslie Cordes is Senior Director of Partnership Development at the United Nations Foundation. Ms. Cordes, thanks a lot. It was my pleasure. Thank you. moment, power from your pooch. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Just ahead, sun, 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 California, here it comes. But first, this note on emerging science from Megan Miner. Sticky rice is popular in East Asia, partly because it's conveniently clumpy for eating with chopsticks, but its stickiness also made it useful to ancient Chinese builders. 1,500 years ago, Chinese bricklayers mixed heated limestone and water with sticky rice to create a mortar. The sticky rice lime paste may be the world's earliest combination mortar that used both organic and inorganic materials. The use of sticky rice mortar persisted through the Ming Dynasty, which flourished until the mid-17th century. City walls, tombs, and palaces built with the rice lime paste have proven durable, resilient to earthquakes, and standing up to the test of time. Chemists in China have recently uncovered the secret ingredient that makes this rice lime paste work. It's amylopectin, a complex carbohydrate in sticky rice. The researchers say this information will prove helpful in restoring ancient buildings, and this can be a tricky process. Using modern alternatives can lead to the failure of the restoration work and even further damage to the historic structures which just goes to show that sticky rice is not only tasty, but restorative too. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Megan Miner. What would be the largest solar power plant on the planet has just gotten a giant boost of support. The Blythe Solar Power Project has won approval from the California Energy Commission. Now it's up to the Federal Bureau of Land Management to decide if the project gets the environmental go-ahead. 
If it does, the solar thermal station in the Mojave Desert could soon be generating enough energy to power 300,000 homes in Southern California. Matthew Norton is vice president of the venture capital firm Venrock, where he specializes in energy and environmental technologies. And Mr. Norton, thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. We're not talking about rooftop solar here. This is not photovoltaics. Very different piece. So in, in rooftop solar, you have a solar panel, and it both harnesses the sun's energy and converts it into electricity. This is an entirely different thing. So how does this work? How does solar thermal work? So you have these mirrors that are in the shape of a parabola. They're curved, right? Imagine a long trough of these, kind of like a feeding trough for pigs up on its side that's angled so the sun's going to hit it. And then running down the middle of that trough, you have a tube, and that tube contains an oil. What happens is the mirrors concentrate the sunlight on that tube. It heats the oil up. Then you move the oil from one end of the tube to another where you have a turbine, the same kind of thing you'd find in a coal plant or a nuclear plant, that boils water to make steam and spins it around. In this case, the heat that you're using is the heat in the oil from the concentrated sun rays bounced by the mirrors rather than from burning coal or burning something else. And this is going to produce the energy of equivalent to about a, a small nuclear power plant. One gigawatt of power as uh, right up the alley of a typical nuclear power plant. Now, this plant that they're proposing has won clearance from the California Energy Commission. Yep. What does that do? Does that give it the green light to go ahead? It gives part of the green light. It gives one of the green lights. There are some other green lights to go. This enables the plant to be constructed and to interface with California's electricity grid. So where does the Federal Bureau of Land Management come in? So that was the next step. Actually, right after the approval came from the California Energy Commission, there was an approval from the Bureau of Land Management that said, we've completed the environmental approvals. We think this is fine. That then goes out for a 30-day comment period, which is happening now. And then once those comments come back, they'll be processed by the BLM. If they were to give a final go-ahead, that's probably sometime in October. That's not the biggest hurdle, though, right? After all these things are done, the plant still has to get financing, people to stump out the capital to go and build this one gigawatt, 7,000-acre monstrosity, and that won't be done until all these approvals are completed. How much money are we talking here? $6 billion, I think, is the target price tag. Are there federal subsidies to this? There is a federal loan guarantee program. The Department of Energy would not speak about using that until all the Bureau of Land Management stuff is done. So I would expect to see the DOE... Uh, raise its voice on this project sometime October, November, something like that. Environmentalists, curiously enough, have raised their voices about this project. Some are for it and some are against it. Yeah. Why? Why would you be against renewable energy resource? Renewable energy is a wonderful thing. And if you compare this kind of technology against the way we get most of our power now from nuclear and coal, it's the one way in which it's unambiguously better, right? There's no risk of radiation like there is in nuclear, no CO2 emissions like in coal, undeniably a good thing. The downfall of this kind of technology is that you need an enormous amount of land. If you do the back of the envelope math on this, to make one gigawatt, we're using 7,000 acres. That's about 35 watts per square meter of surface, right? Take a typical coal plant. I just picked a random one out of Wisconsin. 595 megawatts, 345 acres. That's 426 watts per square meter, more than 10 times the amount of energy per unit of area than you get from solar thermal. So if you're going to build one of these, first of all, you need a place where there's a lot of land, a lot of sunlight, no competing use for the land, and it's got to be one big contiguous tract. There just aren't many places like that in the world, and it's hard to go out and build something this big on one without getting environmentalists concerned about habitat destruction, uh, disrupting migration routes for wildlife, things like that. But we're talking the Mojave Desert here. There's not a lot out there, is there? 
while there is not a lot out there, you can't get anything for free, right? You are going to be disrupting somebody's habitat if you go out and take 7,000 acres of land and devote them to some different kind of use. So do you anticipate that environmentalists would, would sue to prevent this project from going ahead? Possible. I think if that trigger was going to be pulled, it probably would have already been done. There was a bill that went through Congress last year called the California Desert Protection Act of 2009 that aimed to block off a large amount of California land to the north in the Mojave from projects exactly like this one. This is a little further away from people. It's not as attached to things that have uh, been thought of as tourist destinations or public lands that people have wanted to preserve. So it's a little less controversial than the northern sites have been. Now, I understand that a solar thermal plant like this winds up using a lot of water. This is going to be in the desert. Where's the water come from? It does. So typical solar thermal, again, at the front end, you're concentrating the power of the sun to create heat. But on the back end, you're using that heat to boil water and turn a turbine, just like in any other kind of power plant, right? The challenge on that back end, you need the same kind of water that you do in coal or in nuclear, which you typically find with big cooling towers next to lakes, right? Because you have to have some way of cooling the steam down to turn it back into water. People usually do that by using more water, which means you need to be located to a river or a lake, some sort of source like this. You don't have that in the desert. The way they've gotten around that in this project is by using dry cooling technology, a fancy name for blowing air past the steam to get it to cool again. That increases the expense. It makes the power more costly, but it also diffuses the environmental bomb. So, Matthew Norton, when um, do you expect that uh, solar thermal will become a formidable form of energy in the United States? My bet would be never in terms of being a very large part of the electricity mix. And the reason is that to build one plant like this one, you have about 10 times the amount of land required to build a comparable coal facility, even a greater multiple against a nuclear facility. And you've got to get it all in one place. It's got to be all together, one continuous big tract located where there's a lot of sunlight, where people don't live, the land's not being put to another use, and there's not a tremendous concern about wildlife that you might disrupt. I just don't think there are that many sites. This one is the low-hanging fruit. It makes perfect sense. There may be several dozen more like this in California, perhaps multiples of those in other states like Arizona and New Mexico. But uh, as a major contributor to the electricity mix across the country, just aren't many places you can put these things. Well, Matthew Norton, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Matthew Norton is vice president of Venrock. It's an early-stage venture capital firm specializing in clean energy. with a happy ending. Gio, come here, puppy. Come on, puppy. Let's go. Good boy. Good boy, Gio. Once upon a time, there was a man and his best friend. I'm Jay Santos, and I live in the neighborhood. My dog, Gio, and I come here probably once or twice a day just to have fun and use the park. Lots of dogs use this small corner park in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's designed for dogs. There's a chain-link fence surrounding a field of gravel where Gio, a sleek pharaoh hound, and his new friend, Sadie, a curbstone setter, run and take care of business. For Gio's owner, Jay Santos, business is picking up. I have a bag in my hand. I will be making a deposit. 
Ordinarily, Santos would dump the bag into a garbage can and city workers would haul the contents to a landfill. But since August, dog owners at this park have been dumping their pet waste into a work of art called the Park Spark Project. It's form and function. I think it's fun. We put our dog poop in it every day and it powers the light. I mean, what, what's better than that? <laughs> the art installation is a device that converts pooch waste into gas that powers an antique street lamp, shedding light on a common problem. How to curb canine carbon. Well, my name is Matthew Mazzotta, and uh, I'm a conceptual artist, and I live here in Boston, and I um, produced this uh, Park Spark project. Owning a dog is sometimes not the most environmentally sound thing you can do. I guess this is one way of reducing that footprint. Or carbon paw print, as the case may be. It's estimated there are nearly 80 million dogs in the United States. That's a lot of climate-changing waste going to waste in landfills. Last year, Matt Mazzotta traveled to India, where he saw methane digesters used on farms. When he came back home, the light bulb went on over his head. That garbage can used to be full all the time. That's where I came up with the idea. It was totally full a year ago, and I thought to myself, you know what, we should be using that. Show me how it works. Yeah, okay. At the edge of the park are two bright yellow metal tanks and the old-fashioned streetlight. So this is a, a digester. It's a passive system. There's no electricity. There's no anything involved. The technology all lies in the fact that it's anaerobic, which means it's what you're putting in there, you're depriving it of oxygen. So here you have a little inlet pipe, and uh, when the dog does its business, you pick it up and you throw it in here in one of these biodegradable bags. It goes inside, sinks to the bottom, and in that environment, the microbes that are already in the waste, they start to breathe out methane. The same way we breathe out carbon dioxide, they breathe out methane. The dog waste goes in, and then there's a little stir here that just agitates it. So it just turns like that. This is an old... I wanted some old-looking handle, so I, I went to an antique store and got this thing. And that kind of mixes it up a bit. It's not the most essential thing, but it makes it a little bit more efficient. How, how long does it take for the average bag to turn into a light? Well, the whole thing is the the bag has to biodegrade first before the, the dog poop can become usable. But uh, I started on cow manure, so I had to wait about a week and a half. And actually, I had a scientist come down here. He tested it, and he says, you know, you're a little bit low on your pH. Put it in two boxes of uh, baking soda. So, and then that actually cleared it up, and now the gas is burning nice and white. So you've had nothing else since then? No, this is, that's why I think it's so magical. I think that's why I was interested in it. It's, this, it's a passive system, and it just uses one technology to just close off the oxygen. So you're using dog waste and water. That's it. There's nothing else. How much light will you know a daily yeah. dose of, of do do? So the digesters, the amount of light you'll get is how big it's scaled. This particular one, I scaled it, I think, on the rather small side for the amount of waste that's coming in here. What I've been doing is just burning it all night. Turn it on at 7.30 and then turning it off in the morning when I wake up. But if you scale them a little bit bigger and if there's more dog waste, this thing could run 24 hours a day, which is the idea, I think. That's where I think it gets most exciting, this free energy source. Not only is it free, but it burns free. I mean, it's a carbon recycling project. Yeah, so I think there's three, I think, three layers of awesomeness with this project. The first one is that you're greening the park. You're collecting this methane, which is one of the most potent greenhouse gases. It's like 70 times worse than um, carbon dioxide. This is reducing that by burning it. The second is a free energy source. And then the third layer is uh, what are we going to do with this? And I think that's an exciting moment. What do we do with this free energy inside the city? So trying to collect uh, ideas so we can either turn it into a popcorn machine or something the community actually would want and uh, participate in. What's interesting is that it wasn't an engineer that no. did this. It was an artist. I think that uh, there's a breed of artists that are these 
interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary artists, they go into other disciplines, say, you know, this technology has already been used, you know, biology and the physics and all this, but I think the artist's role is to bring it to this new context to make this social role or something more environmental or something more visible. So I think that's the role of an artist that I'm in. So it's art in context. It's the context yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes the art. Yep, yep. It's where you're presenting this information. So scientists might present it in journals and have all kinds of mathematics involved. I'm taking it and presenting it to a park. Do you have a dog? I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, right? <laughs> I've met a lot of dogs through this, though. Conceptual artist Matthew Mazzotta. The lights will go out on his Park Spark project later this month, but his dog-powered methane digester has generated a lot of interest from as far off as Bogota, Colombia, a small town in Italy, and Hungary. You can check out photos of our happy tale at LOE.org. Swallows Swan Song. As a prelude to migration, tree swallows gather this time of year at the Connecticut River, where they merge into a massive cloud called the Swallow Funnel. Writer Mark Seth Lender lent an ear to their symphony. On the flyout, tree swallows rise with a roar. Up and up and up and fold into a single form, then spread, then crash, then break apart and drop down low, just above the island's shore. Five hundred thousand muted bells toll left and toll right and dive into the tall reeds. No sign, no sound, not come to rest, but a vanishing, consumed, then spit out, chord by phrase by crescendo and echo of birds, dark and brilliant notes upon the sky. Allegretto. The cloud of swallows rolls and lofts, a sea above high sea, clarion to passing hawks and falcons, how it turns their predatory ears and eyes. Passing through and through this great music made by the living flesh of birds, their talent fails them. Finale. In the last descent, the swallows funnel down a grand cacophony. Here they feel most vulnerable. Each phrase, tuto presto, as speed replaces virtuosity, but nothing can follow them, can capture more than a blur. Wings folded back like sixteenth notes, cascading in slurs and in staccato. Only a shiver marks their entrance into the Phragmites, a fall that should have broken bones. Perhaps... Like the conductor's stern baton, abruptly pianissimo, it is the reeds themselves which bring them to a stop, and this safe cushion is why they come here, for the coda of soft landing. To sleep, to wait, to arise once more. Daybreak. Tree swallows go their separate ways. They will stop for bayberry when they can find it, but mostly they will feed on insects, plump with the indulgences of summer and the mild days of early fall. Over water they gather the all but invisible life which hovers there, scooping with open mouths and tiny tongues. The Connecticut River is an ancient parchment. 
its ebb and flow a score long studied and well known. Winter is the great river's last movement, a measure tree swallows can never master, a chorus they must not sing on pain of death. A claim will therefore be late, sung by tree swallows only at their grand return to this once and still untrammeled place. Encore! 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 Mark Seth Lender is author of the soon-to-be-released book Salt Marsh Diary, A Year on the Connecticut Coast. And while you're at our website, LOE.org, see a slideshow of some of Mark's photos. Just ahead, seeing is believing. A climate change skeptic changes. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Time again for listener letters, feedback, and back talk. Our story last week about the FDA considering the merits of genetically modified salmon landing on the nation's tables caught the attention of Margot Pellegrino, who heard it on WHYY. My first reaction was, I'm sorry, but this is scary. We are still learning about genetically modified crops. Maybe I'm just a simpleton, but the KISS rule is the best rule to live by and eat by. Keep it simple, silly. Many listeners wrote to say the thought of a genetically modified fish on their plate didn't make their lips smack. Support local farmers, some said. Others suggested grow your own food or go vegan. Listener John Parker, a supporter of WYPR in Baltimore, Maryland, had this advice for producers of transgenic fish. Industry, agree to label and try it out in a few markets. Take your time, do this right, good science, slow open studies are good business. In response to our story about political interference with government food inspectors, we received this email. It reads in part, I'm a federal employee who knows firsthand about the risks of speaking out and the subsequent retaliation by agency administrators. The Merit System Protection Board, the No Fear Act, and other so-called whistler protections are considered ineffective by attorneys who specialize in federal employment law. A real achievement would be changing the law to make speaking to the media about agency intransigence and wrongdoing a protected practice. Please do not publish my name or email address. Last week, Robin Moore of Conservation International talked to us about expeditions in search of a 100 species of amphibians scientists fear are extinct. Moore said he was hopeful he'd have some good news to report and promised to let us know as soon as he did. Well, good news travels fast. Researchers found three species that didn't croak. If you have comments, kudos, or criticisms, you can leap over to our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. Our email address is comments at LOE.org, or give us a buzz at 800-218-9980. Winners of the prestigious Heinz Environmental Award have just been announced. This year, the Heinz Foundation is honoring a wide variety of environmental innovators, including a distinguished academic for his work in sustainable transportation, a pioneer in green chemistry, and a scientist who studies the suspected endocrine-disrupting chemical BPA. 
Awards and checks for $100,000 will also be going to several winners who focus on climate change. Among them, James Balog. He's director of Earth Vision Trust and a one-time climate change skeptic. James Balog joins us from Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to LOE and congratulations. Well, thank you so much. It's a wonderful week and a, and a wonderful honor and a privilege. I feel very blessed. A climate change skeptic winning one of the premier environmental awards. Now, now that's an achievement. Well, I'm not a skeptic, and I haven't been in a long time. But uh, 20 years ago, I thought this whole uh, science was based on computer modeling, and I'm I'm a bit of a technological uh, luddite, and I thought that if it was all based on computer modeling, there could be something wrong with it. But then I took the time to learn about the evidence that was uh, in the ice cores, and then I got out into the field and looked at what was happening to the glaciers, and I realized that uh, this was not about models and projections and statistics. This was incredibly real and concrete and immediate and happening really quickly. In a sense, seeing is believing. Yeah, absolutely. As a photographer my whole career and as a once upon a time an experiential educator for Colorado Outward Bound School and as a mountaineer for 40 years, I am quite keyed into the feeling of uh, experience, you know, seeing things, touching things, letting them vibrate in your in your chest. Well, when you're standing at the side of these glaciers and you're watching uh, huge masses of ice go away, you you really get it. And you've captured these images in, in uh, something you call the extreme ice survey. Tell me about that. Yes, uh, the Extreme Ice Survey is a um, so far a four-year project. We have uh, time-lapse cameras permanently stationed at glaciers in many parts of the world. They photograph every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, every hour, whatever the case may be, and they keep a living record of the glaciers as they're changing. And we periodically go out to these remote locations, download the cameras, and turn these pictures into video that animate the changing life of these uh, masses of ice. You're going to freeze frame this moment in time, this historic moment in time. What I find so uh, captivating and what has had me so obsessed by this the past five years is the realization that this is a monumental and truly historic moment of Earth history right now, as the impact of carbon burning is having these gigantic effects on, on really enormous masses of the landscape. And for me as a photographer, to have the opportunity, however sad it may be, to capture these things on film is really extraordinary. You know, you, you're seeing history passing in front of the lens, in front of your eyes, and it's an awesome and uh, an inspiring thing. I went to your website, and you have some extraordinary um, pictures and, and, and videos. You've made these kind of time-lapse collages. Uh, let's listen to one. This is it, ground zero. More ice is released into the global ocean from this glacier than any other glacier in the northern hemisphere. If sea level rises, this is where it all begins. This, this is it, ground zero. Where is ground zero? Where is this place that you're uh, photographing? Yeah, what we're seeing in that clip is the Lulisat Glacier on the west coast of central Greenland. And it's been uh, retreating quite dramatically the past uh, nine years. The summer in Greenland has been the warmest since uh, records uh, started being kept in 1873. One of the images that you have uh, in your video shows a part of a glacier falling off into the sea, and you say, and you superimpose upon it 300 Capitol buildings. 3,000. Oh. 
Yeah, that block of ice that breaks off in that picture is equivalent to 3,000 U.S. Capitol buildings in volume. So it was an enormous piece of ice. And when I have had opportunities to show that uh, animation at the U.S. Capitol to congressmen or senators or to uh, government agency officials, of course, everybody gets a big kick out of that comparison. Yeah, but do they get it? Do they get climate change? I think the vast majority of the legislators do get the climate change story. They understand the factual evidence that's at hand. But they have a problem with accepting that evidence because of various other factors, many of them financial and commercial, that impinge on their best judgment. And I'm afraid that the future is going to judge our moment in history rather poorly when they realize that we've been asleep at the wheel and we haven't been dealing with the facts that we've had at hand. You go way out there. You're in helicopters and canoes, and you, you're out in the middle of nowhere. A lot of adventures. Any misadventures? Ironically, when it's just about me as a mountaineer uh, engaging with the landscape, I feel relatively secure with that. The place where I feel anxious is with machinery. We have some of these sites that we only get to by helicopter, and we have had one helicopter at least uh, with some serious mechanical problems, and it almost uh, wound up going down into the ocean. And the prospect of trying to survive a swim in 30-degree water with icebergs is not very appealing, and actually you know you're going to die in five or ten minutes. So fortunately, we got through that, and everything was fine. You've got two children, as I understand it, right? I have two girls, one uh, almost nine and the other one 22. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you put your life at great risk here, and, and yet you've got two kids, a wife, and, you know, why? Uh, that's a hard question to answer, and I, and I lay awake at nights uh, anxious about that uh, many times. But I feel a, a devotion and a dedication and, a, and an obligation to this work. Um, you know, at a certain point, photography is is not a job. It's a vocation. It's a calling. This bearing of witness to this historic moment is what calls me. I, I have to do it. Well, Mr. Baylong, I want to thank you very, very much, and um, congratulations again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. James Baylog is director of the Extreme Ice Survey and founder of Earth Vision Trust. You can see some of James Baylog's extraordinary photographs on our website, LOE.org. And thanks to KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, for the use of their studio. September 30th marks the 75th anniversary of the dedication of Hoover Dam. When it was finished in 1935, it was by far the largest dam in the world and considered one of the country's seven modern civil engineering wonders, celebrated in films like this 1950s-era documentary. Build a dam in the wilderness, and the world will beat a path to it. For many centuries, this was a lonely canyon, unseen and untouched by man, scorched by a desert sun scolded by an angry river slashing its way to the mother sea. Now it lies peaceful and silent, except for the gentle hum of a hydroelectric power plant, the bubbling up of water as it leaves mighty turbines, the cheerful sounds of America and the world on the move to see this pioneer multipurpose reclamation project, Man Built in Black Canyon. Michael Hiltzik is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the L.A. Times. His new book, Colossus, documents the history and importance of Hoover Dam. Michael Hiltzik spoke with Living on Earth's Jeff Young. 
Now, the full title of your book is Colossus, Hoover Dam, and the Making of the American Century. Why that subtitle? Well, my thesis, the the theme of the book really is that this project made America. Hoover Dam provided the water and the power that really allowed the West to grow. And because the West grew to this extent, really the nation changed. Tell me a bit about the dam and the Colorado River and what is so exceptional about uh, both. It's a beautiful structure. It's the epitome of machine age architecture from the 1930s. And it was a tremendous engineering achievement then. It still stands head and shoulders above much of the engineering uh, that we have today. This dam was twice the size of any dam that had ever been built at the time. It required more concrete than had ever been poured in all the dams that the U.S. government had built up to that day. It had to be invented as it went up because existing construction methods and equipment weren't adequate to do the task. Even concrete, concrete had to be reformulated. New formulas had to be found because mass concrete had never undergone the stresses and strains that this dam was going to to undergo. And this was all done at a time when the United States was under great stress, economic crisis, political uncertainty, uh, and yet the country came together to build it, and it still serves us today. Toward the beginning of your book, you have this quote that really stood out to me because it says so much about how people viewed the world back around the early years of the of the last century. And I'm wondering if you could read that for us. This is from uh, Woodrow Wilson's interior secretary. Who Who was he? His name was Franklin K. Lane. Just to put it in context, this was an era where the word conservation didn't mean what the way we think of it today. It, it meant putting natural resources to use for mankind. The way he put it was, every tree is a challenge to us and every pool of water and every foot of soil. The mountains are our enemies. We must pierce them and make them serve. The sinful rivers we must curb. And of course, the most sinful river of all was the Colorado. The sinful rivers. Wow. The sinful rivers. Did they curb that sinful river, the Colorado? Well, they achieved a lot in curbing it, but the river still is willful. Uh, Some would say it still is sinful. Certainly the people who lived uh, downstream of the floods in the 1980s, they would consider it still very sinful. The peoples who lived in the basin long before uh, Europeans got there used to think of the river as a dragon because it was so unpredictable and so violent, and it still has a way of flicking its tail at us even today. And the big idea here is to put water to best use for us. But I was shocked to read in your book how much water we end up wasting simply because we create these impoundments and allow for evaporation. That's right. There's a tremendous amount of evaporation, tremendous amount of loss. Lake Mead, the reservoir of Hoover Dam, occupies the hottest part of the hottest region. It's the Nevada and Arizona desert. Engineers have measured that 20% of the river's production is probably lost to evaporation each year. On a a single weekend, uh, enough water evaporates to serve 17,000 households for a year. And what becomes of the river after we've had our way with it, with the dams, with the impoundments, with the diversions, with the canals? What's left of the Colorado by the time it finally limps out to the sea? The Colorado is probably the most heavily exploited river in North America, possibly in the world. 
there are six dams downstream from Hoover Dam now. And, of course, one major dam, at least uh, upstream, uh, Glen Canyon Dam. And uh, that water, every molecule gets used over and over and over again. And by the time the river reaches its delta, it's barely more than a trickle. This used to be a river that reached the delta with such violence that it could wreck boats in the Gulf of California with its tides. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. It's barely a trickle. And the quality of that water is heavily compromised by agricultural chemicals and salt and silt. With climate change beginning to show its effects in the American West, what do you think is in store for Lake Mead and and the other impoundments along the Colorado as the snow patterns and the snowpack in Colorado begins to change? Well, that's a very good question. And we have a good sense of what's in store because it's been happening for at least 10 years and in some sense even longer. The snowpack, uh, which feeds the Colorado and eventually feeds Lake Mead, uh, has become very erratic. The droughts have gotten longer. There have been studies by the National Academy of Sciences and other experts who say there are going to be more periods of violent flooding on the Colorado and more periods of drought. Well, that's very hard to manage. So much of what you write about resonates with us today. Conflicts about how we're going to generate our power, how we're going to distribute water in arid regions, uh, whether big public works projects can get us out of an economic crisis. These could be today's headlines. That's right. Well, they are today's headlines. We're going to be reading these headlines more and more as the years go on because this crisis is not going to go away. It's only going to get worse. And we need to be much smarter about how we use the resource. Hoover Dam created a tremendous resource, a great economic boon to the region uh, and to the nation. But it's, it's a boon that really needs to be husbanded and, and treated with a great deal of respect. Michael Hiltzik of the Los Angeles Times and author of Colossus, Hoover Dam, and the Making of the American Century. Thank you very much. My pleasure. On the next Living on Earth, cartoon superhero Captain Planet turns 20, saving the Earth for a generation of kids. Saving our planet is, yes, a good thing. However, we are but youths. How can we help? Hey, love your accent, babe. You Russian? Soviet. Captain Planet lasted just three seasons, but his eco-message outlived empires and TV ratings. Living on Earth and our sister program, Planet Harmony, asks 20-somethings how Captain Planet affected their lives. MyPlanetHarmony.com welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting minority communities. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Sriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Annie Glosser, and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Hannah Lyles. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.